0: Listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. In 2006, UN member states did something unusual. Despite not being able to agree on a universal definition of terrorism, they managed to agree upon an overarching global counterterrorism strategy, or GCTS. And amid an upcoming review of the GCTS, we're looking at the strategy's four main pillars and what experts should be looking at moving forward. Thanks for joining us, Keith. Could you tell us a little bit more about the history of the UN's global counter-terrorism strategy?
1: So this is a fresh new issue for the UN, relatively speaking. So obviously terrorism is not mentioned in the United Nations Charter that was written in 1945. And one of the problems with terrorism, as you've already highlighted, is just getting an agreed definition Mm. of it. It's thought that the first use of the word terrorist in the English language used by King George III to describe George Washington <laughs> in the War of Independence. Okay. Um, and obviously it's not an, an, an example that Americans would appreciate. No. So it does show that the word terrorism is very heavily loaded and people have very strong views. The problem for the UN, particularly since 9-11, so that's September in 2001, so we're looking at almost 21 years mm. now since that tragedy, there's been a lot of talk about terrorism, but there's very little international agreement about terrorism. I've lived with terrorism now for half a century mm. in a variety of contexts. My first PhD covered that partly. And what I found intriguing is that the UN has managed to get countries to come together on a counterterrorism strategy without actually defining what is terrorism in the first place. The problem is not so much perhaps defining it It's getting agreement about how you could apply the term. So if you look at the dispute between Israel and Palestine, who are the terrorists? Are they the Palestinians who are killing Israeli settlers or are they Israeli settlers who are killing the local Palestinian population? That's where the debate about terrorism gets so complicated because there is no agreed method of application. Okay, it's wrong to kill civilians, but Which civilians should we be talking about? So that's a very basic problem, which the UN has not solved, but then neither has anybody else. Mm. And you make your own interpretations as to what you would regard as an an act of terrorism. I remember being at the conference updating the Geneva Conventions just when I was doing my first PhD in Geneva. And in one of the committees, somebody came up with this great definition of what constitutes terrorism. You know, the infliction of pain and scaring people. And somebody said, Oh, that sounds like the definition of a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I say, this is, I've lived with this now for 50 years. Yeah. Still haven't come up with a, a good definition of it. What I find fascinating is the UN are having to look at their counterterrorism strategy at a time when the world terrorism scene has changed so much. Mm. So, if you go back 20 years ago, if you talked about terrorist groups, In most Western countries, the Western commentators would have been talking about, say, Al-Qaeda and then the Taliban. So Al-Qaeda, meaning the base in Arabic, was run by Osama bin Laden to assist the people who were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. And then later on, once the Soviets had been driven out and then the Americans became more active then obviously they they then turn their attention onto the Americans. So that's what most people would have thought about al-Qaeda and then the Taliban, who are an ethnic Pathan or Pashtun peoples that straddle the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And some of those Afghani Pashtuns then led a campaign against the Soviet Union, freed their country from the Soviet Union, and then later took over all of the country to be run as a caliphate. And so the Taliban then, of course, are the ones that gave support to al-Qaeda around 9-11. That's 21 years ago. Then the Americans invaded with a view to driving out the Taliban. Taliban means seeker or scholar or student. So this was a student movement that eventually took over the country. Fundamentalist Islamic, so very much on the same wavelength as al-Qaeda. They sheltered al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The Americans then invaded Afghanistan with a view to trying to track down the Taliban leaders. And of course, tragically, the Americans lost in Afghanistan, and the Taliban have gone back into control. So they were the the major players Mm. 20 years ago. Now, when you look at the global scene, you've got the Islamic State, which runs with its own agenda, and the Islamic State is currently fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. Looking after it for us. So so we've got this whole new dimension of violence. The Islamic State took the view that the Taliban and al-Qaeda were wimps and they weren't killing people with as much flair as they should have been done. They're the ones who invented the notion of beheading mm. with a blunt knife. I
0: remember. And then filming
1: it and putting it on the internet, etc. cetera. It. So you, you've got all that Islamic State in Africa. It's now called Boko Haram, which means it is forbidden. Mainly, it is forbidden to adopt Western ways of thinking. And so you've got a whole separate Islamic agenda now for Africa, particularly North Africa and West Africa. So when you look at the the scene around the world, it's a lot more complicated. We've got terrorist groups also in our part of the world, around the Philippines, Malaysia, et cetera. So it is a much more complicated scene. And then on top of that, you've got the activities of the Wagner Group in Ukraine and the violence they're carrying out on behalf of the Russian government. Can they be seen as a terrorist organization? you think so. Yeah, I would think I would, so. I yeah. would, yeah. <laughs> we're in agreement. Yeah. So um, we're seeing a, not necessarily a dramatic increase in the level of terrorism, but we are seeing an increase in the variety of terrorism globally. And this issue of the amount of terrorism is worth emphasising because it is not a major way for people to be killed. In America, more people die each year falling off ladders than being killed by terrorists.
0: And the whole point of terrorism, I suppose, is the fear that it can instill in a population or a community. I remember, you know, um, as a young child watching 9-11 on the television, being completely confused and I would have nightmares that Osama bin Laden was going to come to my bedroom and kill me. Like I I was eight, like I was a little girl. I had no idea what was going on. Um, And then ISIS obviously coming through Islamic State. I've got to say, it seemed that Islamic State has been very quiet for the last few years. Is that just from a privileged Western perspective? Yeah. yeah. Like, can you tell me, you know, so there were, you know, um, public stabbings in, in Melbourne um, and, you know, the French terrorist attacks. Yeah. Is that still their goal or have they shifted?
1: No, I I think the issue really is one of perception. Yeah. That if a group kills Westerners, it gets Western media attention, right? If they're just killing people in Afghanistan, the chances are you don't get much coverage,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you know from the Western media outlet, well, they're just Afghani's. But if you kill a Westerner, different. You, yeah, that, that certainly gets you the publicity. Well, what you've touched on, I think, are two issues. One is the perception of the threat, which I think still exists, mm-hmm. even if it's not being fully recorded in Western media, and the the second one is that the risk of homegrown terrorism, that people think globally and act locally. Mm. And we saw that, of course, in France. And so this is the, the, the tragedy that we have, that people, if they want to show support, they can't very easily go to Iraq to fight, although there's no real need to do so. They don't go to Afghanistan to fight. But what they can do is to create a lot of problems here in the West, in their own territory. And, of course, from a policing point of view, this is a nightmare because we have limited outreach into those ethnic communities. And so we we often get taken by surprise. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get some remarkable successes. We had a, a foiled attack on an Australian army base here in Sydney. It came about through work by FBI, looking at some of their own ethnic communities, and the way in which there was a Somali group in the United States, many of young people who themselves have never lived in Somalia, mm. in other words, that you know they yeah. heard it all from their parents who were given asylum in the United States, and the parents are behaving well. But it's the children mm. who decided to be radicalised online, and they then were planning an attack, and the Americans who had infiltrated the group managed to arrest the, the impending attackers but then also sent a message to Australia saying, keep an eye on the Somali community because there may be extremists at work there. And the police were able to intercept them before they were able to blow up the base at Holsworthy.
0: Yeah, so it's a matter, I guess, of perception then. These yep. things can be happening in the background.
1: Absolutely, and we're just not giving it coverage, adequate coverage in the Western media.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Thanks for your company this week. As we look into the UN's global counterterrorism strategy ahead of an upcoming review of the framework. Now, there are questions, Keith, about whether countries need to reassess the GCTS uh, and whether it's actually still serving the function for which it's established. Would you agree?
1: Well, you've always got to keep reviewing your counterterrorism strategy because I've, as I've said, this is a moving target in terms of how things change. I would also say in terms of the changing landscape, which the UN is having to look at, is that what we're also now talking about is the rise of right-wing terrorism.
0: Yes, I wanted to ask you.
1: Yeah, this has come, I was going to say, as a surprise, but it really shouldn't have done. But you've got groups in the United States like the Southern Poverty Law Centre who have been monitoring extremist white groups. The most obvious one would be the Ku Klux Klan. So they have been warning about this. And FBI, some years ago, set up a review team under an FBI official, David Johnson, to review what was happening with these, you know, KKK and the other groupings, et cetera. And the Republicans in Congress closed down the investigation Mm. because their argument is, well, you could be monitoring some of our supporters. We don't want that to happen. And so for a while, FBI had to go quiet on monitoring these right-wing extremist groups. But of course, that's what we've been witnessing big time in the last few years. So it's not just people on the left and the Islamic groups that are a problem. You now also can have these white nationalists, as they're called. And we have obviously the Christchurch mm-hmm. tragedy in New Zealand is a good example of that from an Australian white nationalist causing all that loss of life, as well as, of course, the assault on the U.S. Congress two years ago now, three years ago now. So you've got all these things happening. And again, you'd have disputes because some people would say, well, what happened in the U.S. Congress with the attack as the results were about to be formally announced? That wasn't an act of terrorism. That was just spontaneous demonstrations, Mm. even though four people, I think, perished. So we're back to the problem of definitions. But it does mean that if you're going to go for trying to investigate terrorism, you've got to widen your horizons because there are now so many different sources for it.
0: Do you think global citizens are benefiting from this counter-terrorism strategy? I mean, what is it doing for me sitting here in this (laughs) office right now?
1: Well, you're lucky because you're living in a country with a very low level of terrorism. Absolutely. Um, And in fact, that's the problem overall, that you've just got so few instances Mm. of terrorism outside the more obvious cases like Afghanistan. There are just so few instances, it's very difficult to come up with any sort of systematic study. Mm. You know, it's very different from, say, doing a review of a particular type of cancer because you would have thousands of cases for you to look at. It doesn't work that easily with terrorism. There are just not that many number of cases. So it makes it very difficult to draw up a comprehensive strategy. I guess where you would benefit, though, is that it does give you a message of reassurance that government authorities are paying attention to this risk of extremist violence. And it may well be we should drop the use of the word terrorism and, and use something like extremist violence, because there is certainly an you know, extremist violence going on. Again, we'll be back to the implementation issue. You know How do you actually apply that title? As I say, in the United States, was it extremist violence for people to try to disrupt the work of Congress three years ago? Or was it just a, a spontaneous political act of an expression of freedom of opinion? So you, you're still going to get those different points of view. But I think that all the attention on terrorism is, I think, making people, or should make them more assured that things are underway. On the other hand, there is the problem, which again was identified quite early on, even in the UN's work, about the risks of civil liberties. Mm. Do you throw out the baby with the bathwater when you want to clamp down so hard on how you should monitor society? Do we introduce facial recognition technology? Do we, for example, abolish cash payments? make everybody use plastic as a way of monitoring people. These are all issues. Now, the Chinese would say that they keep the lid on terrorism in China because of facial recognition technology, because they do monitor people's expenditure habits, etc. That's how they maintain stability. Whereas in the West, we still believe in a measure of liberty, perhaps not as much as we would have enjoyed. Certainly every time I've gone back to the United States, it's become, to me, a more anxious a more nervous country, Mm. the pleasure that I enjoyed in 1970 and the freedom, that seems to have been eroded by the anxiety within the Americans. But there is that problem then for trying to protect people from terrorism, you therefore destroy their human rights. So is that really a benefit or would you be better off taking a risk? For me, a classic example of this is that after 9-11 in 2001, Americans stopped flying. Mm. They made greater use of cars, and you had this sudden upsurge of people being killed on the roads because of the dramatic increase in the use of cars. They would have been safer in the air rather than risking driving.
0: Yeah, well, it's terrorism, right? It's that fear that it can instill in us. Um, So there is a review of the UN's Global Counterterrorism Strategy coming up, which is built into the framework of the strategy itself. What do you think is going to be looked at and what do you see happening or coming from the review, if anything at all?
1: Well, I think part of the problem, as this report points out, is that you've now got so many documents relating to counterterrorism. It's very difficult to work out what are the major issues that need to be covered. I've What I find fascinating in this document, that some of the issues that need to be addressed, which probably didn't... Strikers being in this way 20 years ago. We started on the process. So they talk about the emergence of an increasingly transnational, violent, far-right movement, which we've mentioned. You've got online hate. Of course, social media. Oh, yeah,
0: we haven't even (laughs) talked about
1: that yet. So, you know, that wasn't a problem 20 years ago. uh, Social media have certainly uh, represented a completely new frontier in the terms of recruiting terrorism. You've got the whole issue of disinformation which in a sense has always existed, but is now much more easily spread through social media. You've got the phenomenon of the self-directed individual or individual perpetrators who may be motivated by multiple and fluid ideologies Mm -hmm. and the role of some private military contractors in perpetrating acts that can be considered war crimes. And that's obviously Wagner Group in Ukraine. So it, it means that we've got more issues that do need to be covered, need to be addressed, if only to say to governments, this is what you've got to keep an eye on.
0: Do you think that the body is prepared or in a position to make those changes that it needs to? We know sometimes bureaucracy moves very slowly. <laughs> do we see it happening?
1: You're a great diplomat. <laughs> yes, they are moving very slowly. But it's interesting, if you go back 20 years ago, the UN Secretary General at the time came up with what were called the five Ds, which I think is still quite valid. So to dissuade, disaffected groups from choosing terrorism as a tactic to achieve their goals, deny terrorists the means to carry out their attacks, deter states from supporting terrorists, develop state capacity to prevent terrorism, and defend human rights in the struggle against terrorism. So these were five Ds developed almost 20 years ago by the then UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, and I think they've worn well in terms of the targets that we should be working towards. But as we say, terrorism is now increasingly more flexible, more mobile, and keeps going through all these variations. So it makes it very difficult to come up with one strategy that's going to last for more than a few years without it again having to be reviewed.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds like the landscape has changed, but there's definitely still a need for a body like this. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.